What is up at Masters Virtual Summit attendees? Welcome to the summit. We've got some amazing, amazing speakers lined up for you to talk about retention, monetization, and more importantly, growth. And today I've got a phenomenal guest, past guest of the podcast. I loved our, con our conversation so much from the podcast that I invited her back on to be on this virtual summit. We're gonna talk about retention rates. We're gonna talk about monetization with subscription-based apps. And then how do you launch and grow it a niche, let me rephrase that. I'm not gonna edit this out. How do you grow a niche app really fast? And I wanna to talk to her about it because from our conversation, I was like, gave me a little bit more confidence to talk to our clients as well. But let me introduce this guest, enough rambling from me. She is the head of growth for her, the world's largest dating app for queer women. So without further ado, here is Noah Gutterman. Noah, welcome back. Steve, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be back. So Noah, let's talk about this. So let's talk a little bit about her for those who aren't familiar with it. And then let's talk about how you guys approach the growth process. Absolutely. So her, like you said, uh, is the world's largest dating app for queer women. We were founded three years ago. We went through Y Combinator, the accelerator here in San Francisco, um, and then went live after that. As of now, we're live in 55 countries and we're fully localized in two languages, in English and in French. Uh, we have a premium subscription service and a free app for anyone who wants to use it. Uh, we also run live events in 35 cities around the world at least four times a year, which means we've got a lot of events going on at all times. Um, and we recently went through a big rebrand at the end of May where we redid our logo. We came out with a new feature on the app, which is a social networking feature. It's like Reddit and Facebook had a baby and it was queer and it's called communities. Um, and these are basically a way for our community to connect and rally around each other and learn about each other in a way that doesn't necessarily have to do with dating. You can combine it with dating. You don't have to. Um, and it really just helps us create another way to engage people, create another way to bring people onto the platform. So I'm excited to get into that a little bit later. Here's a little tease too. So Noah's going to told me just about something that just happened in terms of ads and the onboarding process. So we're going to talk about that as well. And then how offline events have actually led to 50% more like users being 50% more likely to pay for the subscription premium features as well. But Noah, when it first started, did you guys focus on, because it's a dating app, you have, you know, you need people there. Did you guys focus on a particular area of the world to then really say, okay, yeah. we're going to really target this market first? We definitely did. And, and this was long before I joined the company, but our founder, Robin Exton, um, who's an incredible powerhouse. You should look her up if you don't know her already. Um, but she actually launched the company in her home country of the UK. And she basically uh, started the company because she felt like there wasn't a product for her to date the kind of person she wanted to, which was another queer woman. And she was like, well, if a product isn't out there, I guess I should just create it. Why not me? Um, and the way that she first started it, this is incredibly grassroots and kind of very like old school startup. Um, but she would go to these bars and club nights for queer women that were all over West London. And she would bring a bottle of vodka and a bottle of Sambuca in the other hand and literally go up to people and say, you get a free shot of your choosing if you download this app. 
And so it was incredibly, incredibly grassroots, very small at the beginning. And the whole idea being that she wanted to serve a community she was already a part of. She understood what the live events were. She understood who the users were. She understood what their logic and reasoning was behind downloading an app like her. And she basically created the product around those people. Uh, when we then went through Y Combinator and moved here, we were able to get the money to really expand that beyond the UK. Um, and while it's still one of our biggest markets, we have a massive presence, obviously, in the US, but also in Canada, Australia, France, and now like many other countries. Um, and so for us, it's been really cool to see that growth move from just one or two events in London to being this massive worldwide presence. We have about 3.5 million users worldwide um, and growing about 10% month over month in terms of our user base. And for us, we've still been able to keep that kind of small local feel because we do run these events in so many cities around the world, but we are able to scale at the rate of um, like a really big global startup. How do you decide when you're going into a new market? I know when we first talked in the, the podcast, I think it was France. That was sort of a new market mm -hmm. for you yeah. guys. How do you guys decide which channels to use? Definitely. So in terms of acquisition channels, we work really hard to make sure that we're creating an app and we're advertising that app in a way that makes sense for the local market, right? Like in San Francisco, we all see a lot of ads on our Facebook feed, on our Instagram feed, maybe in our Uber app or our weather app. We don't see a lot of billboards or bus ads or TV ads for smaller companies, right? You often will see like Apple advertise on a podcast or on a billboard, but smaller companies don't necessarily do that. That's just not the route that makes the most sense. Whereas in another country or even another city in the US, um, there are lots of different advertising channels. And so we make a really concerted effort before we ever launch another country, or even another city to scope that market talk to local people. Sometimes we even hire a local person for like an international market right off the bat who can help us way before we ever plan like a party or have an official launch there um, and figure out what channels are working, what channels are really unique and can be eye catching for people when we are able to come in and like put a splashy ad in a newspaper in France, for example, that's really like cool for us. And it also meant that we caught users attention in a way that worked for them, right? You want to make sure that you're meeting your users where they are and, for example, in France, like Facebook ads, they weren't that useful, which is really shocking because in the U.S., that's the most useful channel. Now that we've scaled a little bit more, our presence is known. Those Facebook ads are now very helpful. But for that initial launch, we went the route of doing things that were super localized and specific to that niche market. I know localization has definitely helped for you guys mm -hmm. in terms of growth. But how do you guys decide that France would be the next country or spot definitely. to go after? Yeah, so it was a it was a variety of factors and kind of a, a perfect storm of making sure that a there were users there. We want to make sure that there's a significant population of queer people and also queer people that are comfortable joining a dating app, which is like can be kind of a public experience because other people can identify you as queer, and so you have to be okay with that. We need a market where people. Uh, have the kind of capital where they could potentially upgrade to premium subscribers. We want to make sure we're setting ourselves up for success when it comes to our revenue stream. Uh, and thirdly, we want to make sure we're in a market where there is a fair degree of social acceptance of the queer community. We'd never want to put our users in danger or in any kind of social jeopardy. And so we always make sure that we're launching in a country uh, where it makes sense to launch from a political standpoint. And so when all those factors come together, it's kind of the perfect storm for us, especially if you add that fourth extra piece of there's some big local queer presence already. Like in France, we launched right in time for Paris Pride. 
And so our launch party was the same weekend as Paris Pride. We kind of folded it in. We were able to be a part of that Pride. And it really uh, made us seem very legit to the French users and also helped us capitalize on this one moment out of the year when kind of all the queer people rally together and want to be out, want to be at parties, want to be talking to each other. And so a dating app is the perfect thing to come in at that time, especially now with our new communities feature. Through the app, you can find all the queer events in your area. You connect connect with people like you. We have a Paris community specifically for that. Um, and you can kind of make the app a platform for everything you want to do when it comes to your queer life. Oh, awesome. And are you, I'm assuming this is a yes, but have you localized the app so that like somebody in Paris will see everything in French and all that? Yep, okay. exactly. So so we made a very concerted effort to make sure we said if we're going to do an international launch, we want it to be really spot on. We want it to be fully localized. So everything in the app is in French if you are in France or you can turn it on in French if you're you know in a French speaking country in Africa, let's say. Uh, you can also um, all of our marketing material is in French. So all of our pushes, our emails, our in-app messaging, totally in French, the events page, you know, the Facebook events are all in French. So, so it, it took a while and, and we worked with some great translation services that I can talk about if you'd like me to, sure. but, um, we, we really felt lucky about that. We worked with a company, um, called Unbabble, uh, which actually was also a Y Combinator company. Um, and they were able to really help us make sure everything was in French. That's awesome. Now the, the onboarding process, did that change at all when you went to another localization? Yeah, it did. So our onboarding in France is a little bit different than it is in English. Um, and we A-B tested different flows to make sure that people were still responding well, even if we tweaked things or they were responding to the same thing in France versus a Western country that spoke English. Um, we found that it's pretty much the same onboarding process with a couple little changes, you know, specifically like French flag emojis and the push messaging and like French, um, like localized kind of slang language when it comes to the queer community. It's very different than the, um, the English that we use. And so it was much more about making sure the translations were spot on and that they felt really genuine as opposed to just like feeling like it ran through Google translate or something like that. Um, but the onboarding flow itself, the steps, the pushes, the kind of tutorial that you walk through when you download the app, that stayed pretty consistent. I apologize if this is too granular, but did you guys, oh, no. when you guys moved to France, you're like, did you guys see that there were premium users already there too? And you're like, Hey, you know, that we, we have like, you know, I don't know, 5% premium users in France. Like this would be a market that we should go after. Yeah, absolutely. So we did take a look at the user base of all the countries that we considered going local. And, in, and to be clear, we will eventually become local on all those. It was just which one comes first. And actually, the you're spot on with that. The kind of linchpin that sealed the deal for France is we had a very active user base of existing users who were just using the app in English, but located in France. And they were kind of acted almost as like an advisory group for us. We reached out to all of them. We asked them who are their favorite influencers that we could work with to create sponsored content. What were their favorite parties that were already going on that they like to go to, their favorite queer newspapers, their favorite journalists, their favorite TV personalities. And so we're able to draw a lot of that colloquial language that we use on the app from the information we got from these advisory users. And then we had them beta test the French version and send us any issues that they saw with the language um, in exchange for like premium discount codes and tickets to our parties for a discounted rate. And so it was really helpful to have that existing user base, even though they were small, we had about like 30,000 users in France already. Um, but that number obviously has just skyrocketed since we, we've gone live there. That's amazing. I'm glad I asked it. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you guys are a subscription-based app and I think that is definitely mm -hmm. the future. How do you think about the yeah. customer life cycle? 
Definitely. So for, for all dating apps, the industry standard is that 90% of your users will drop off after 30 days. That's a pretty big number. When you're working with a niche community already, you don't want to burn people too quickly, right? Doing like a churn and burn model for a niche app is not going to work long term. You're going to exhaust your potential user base, even though more and more people every day are coming out as queer. They're not coming out fast enough for us to go through people at a 90% drop off rate. And so we work really hard to make sure that we are retaining people and taking people through these gaps where they're very likely to drop off. So we concentrate a lot of our attention on the periods of time when we know people are very likely to drop off. For us, days one through three, really big drop off points. And then days four, five, six, seven, eight, it decreases about 1% in terms of the drop off rate every day. And then when you get to days 26 through 30, you see another pretty steep drop off. So we've kind of re-engineered or back engineered all of our communication, all of our attention-based marketing to be around those drop-off points. So that's when we offer things like premium discount codes. That's when we push our special features. We'll suggest matches customized for you. We'll suggest great ideas for like first messaging in an app because we find that that's when a lot of our users drop off because they're too scared to send a message. They don't know what to say. So we give them little tips and tricks. We'll send them a personalized inbox message from Robin. So it almost is like they're getting a match, but it's like a tip from Robin about like, you should check out this person or here's a great opener. Here's a discount code for the party in your area. And so we do, a, we have a lot of different strategies around it, but basically we want to try, if we can get people over a 30 day hump, especially if they get premium, even just for a month's subscription, they're way more likely to stick around. How do you guys know what to offer to get them to stick around past the day three and four mark? <laughs> Definitely. It, it's done. It's gone through a lot of testing. Basically, if you think about your attention model, a lot of people structure it around days, right? At day one, you want to hit people with one message. At day two, you want to hit people with a different message and so on and so forth. We actually do it a very different way and we do it by user behavior. So we have five main categories for user behavior. We have like matched, but has not sent a message. We have sent likes, but has not matched yet. We've got has not sent likes, but has received likes. We've got no likes, no likes received, and we've got totally inactive, has not done any liking or receiving of likes. And then we target those groups of people in very different ways throughout the first eight days and then between days 26 and 30 so that we're basing our attention strategy off user behavior, not on our own assumptions about when drop-offs happen. And so all the messaging is super customized to each one of those groups of people, which we find really helps keep them engaged because they feel like we're actually reaching out to them on a unique level. Like, let's say you've matched, but you haven't sent a message yet. We're pretty sure it's because you're kind of scared and you're like, maybe unsure. You like don't know what to say. And so we like target with like, you've already got this great match. The hard part is over. Here are three awesome ideas of first messages to send. And that is a really great kind of like personal touch to re-engage people. What's a good opener? Just curious. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you look at dating apps, uh, a really high number of first messages are just, hey, uh, it works, certainly. I mean, lots of people have met their partner and their uh, wife or husband on dating apps. And I think a lot of those probably started with, hey, uh, we often suggest asking them, you know, if they're going to the next her party in their area, send some mm -hmm. cute emojis, gifts really work. Uh, people love a good gift, especially if it's like, you know, Mariah Carey, very popular and Gippy. Um, but there are honestly, for us, it's like the top message openers vary a lot per city. And so in our messaging flows, we have them kind of customized per city or per country. Um, but the general thing is that 
the first message that works is any message because starting a conversation is the hard part. So as long as we can get someone to send one message, we're pretty good. Oh, I love that. And you have to break it down. Like, how did you guys know to go by city? Like, give them custom messages by city. Mm-hmm. Well, we do it when we have a local event coming up in that area. Um, because our local events are also really customized per market. And just to remind all of your um, viewers or listeners who didn't hear my episode of the podcast, our live events are really specific to the market. And we have a local event coordinator in every city who works for us who plans these parties. So like in Minneapolis, it's like chill, daytime. Sometimes they have like dog petting events. In Montreal, it's like club raves. In New York, it's like swanky hotel parties. So really, it's super different based on the market. Um, and so when we have like an event coming up in that area, we'll, we could send out like a push that, you know, if it's in Minneapolis, we have some dog petting events, we could send out some dog emojis or a dog gif and say like, you have to be at this event if you want to see like 10 more cute dogs, like here's a $10 discount code. And we find that to be very effective. I want to move on great tangent yeah. or transition into <laughs> the, the live events. And, I, and you're hearing you talk about this and seeing that, you know, you saw 50% more likely to upgrade users were 50% more mm-hmm. likely to upgrade to the premium subscription because of these live events. I was like, Oh man, I should keep doing these live events. Cause I like it. So talk about, talk mm-hmm. to me about how live events play a role in her. Yeah. So live events, as I told you with like the initial creation of the company have always been an integral part of our business model and something that we feel is very important because Queer women have very few public spaces that are uniquely their own, especially in the last few years. We've seen a decline in the number of bars that are specifically for queer women, bookstores, even like journals and newspapers. And so there's a white space in the market and we want to be the one to fill it. Not saying we're the only ones. There are so many amazing parties and events out there for queer women. But we want to play a really big role in that market since we are the largest dating app for queer women. And so we identify key markets where we feel like we should have a presence uh, and run live events. We then hire a local event lead in that market who already knows how to throw parties, who plans and executes these events for us. Uh, We sell tickets through the app and through Facebook and Eventbrite and other things, but the app and the live events are really intrinsically tied to one another and kind of serve each other. We'll often do things where like you have to show that you've downloaded the app in order to get into the party. Um, or in the reverse, we'll give you a discount code on tickets if you message someone in the app to get you to attend the party. I mean, it's really effective ways of doing things. We also have, we make sure that every event, no matter if it's dog petting or club rave, has something about it that is uniquely her. There is one moment in that party where you can say, yes, I went to that party and I know it was her because X, Y, and Z. And so we want you to leave that party feeling like you want more of it. And you can't get more of it tomorrow because you don't have an event the next day. So you should download the app and have that same experience, but online. And so we really do a lot of work. I work very closely with our global head of events to make sure that the branding and the feel is consistent, whether you're on your phone, in your house, or at a party. How do you make sure that these events are, not to get so businessy, but like ROI positive, you know, they actually make an impact on the business. And how do you guys measure that too? Definitely. So in terms of like the ROI on events, uh, I, I wouldn't get into too much detail on this only because I'm not the best person to talk about it. Um, I really don't touch the kind of business side of the events. We essentially do events that are pretty uh, low upfront cost. We'll often do like um, an event where either we like bring in our own bar or we create a deal with the venue of saying like, we know we can get you this many people 
buy this many drinks after that point, like we get a kickback from it. Um, so we, this is why actually we hire local event people because they know the venues, they know the important people in their city or town that need to be like involved in this process, whether it's getting permits from city hall or working with like the cool DJ in the area. Like this is exactly why, honestly, we hire local people because I don't deign to know how to throw an event in a different city than San Francisco. I would have no idea where even to start. Um, in terms of being ROI positive, again, we make a lot of money from the ticket sales for these events and they both help pay for the party and help pay for the product of the app. We wouldn't throw them if they were an ROI positive. Quite frankly, it would be a, a silly decision for our business model. No matter how much we feel like it's important, uh, you know, from a social perspective, we wouldn't be throwing them if, if they didn't work for us. Um, and it, part of why they work, to your point, is that if you have attended two or more events, you're 50% more likely to upgrade to premium. We proved this with uh, a model we created in Australia where we launched in Melbourne. We ran two parties. We tracked every single person attended both parties, saw how likely they were to upgrade to premium after that, hit them with all these different discount codes. And we proved that it really is possible. In terms of our premium features, we also now offer things in premium that are like VIP tickets to the events. So if you get premium, then you're more likely again to come back for a third event. And if you go to a third event, again, you're much more likely to upgrade to premium. So it works in both ways and both parts of the business, like I said, really fuel each other and, and help each other grow. Um, and events is super integrated into our business. A lot of companies keep events in like the separate division of like, this is the events marketer and this is the events graphic designer. And for us, it's all part of the same business and we don't want to silo it. Now, let's talk about something I teased earlier about something that just happened that you said, yeah. you know, like you had to test out a couple of different things. <laughs> and so, Definitely. No, I, I'm so excited that I'm able to share this story now. I was like really hoping we'd get to the bottom of it before you and I talked because it's something that I wish someone had talked to me about, quite honestly. Um, but we recently did a rebrand. Again, I talked about it a lot in your podcast, so I don't want to jump into it too deep here. We launched a rebrand at the end of May. We redid our logo we released this new section of the app communities. And the whole idea was to take the app from being in this place of advertising and representing the idea of like just love and relationships. So a lot of our imagery was around two women kissing or holding hands or doing like coupley things. And we wanted to take it to a place of fluidity, of community and of like kind of collective strength. And a lot of the images around that are not of couples, right? They're of really strong, badass women doing cool things with like awesome hair and tattoos and just like looking like the coolest versions of themselves, the girls you like want to be friends with. But quite honestly, when you look at why people are coming to a dating app, many of them are in fact coming to find love. And whether or not they believe or want to represent this message that we very strongly stand for of community and of collective power, we need to make sure that we're still serving the people who we started this business to serve, which is to help queer women find each other, connect with each other and find love if that's what they're looking for. And so we had taken all of our user acquisition advertising to this new branding. So a lot of images of women in the collective, a lot of images of groups. Uh, and it, we were seeing this massive drop off between app download and account creation. Account creation is the first stage of the app. You can't do anything else until you create an account. And we realized that the only thing people were seeing was our login screen. And that login screen was incredibly branded towards our new branding. It's like very, very new branding focused. And if someone's coming in from an acquisition ad that's more of our older style of, you know, two women kissing, and then they see this new image, they might be really confused and 
we realized they were actually dropping off way before they even got to try out the product. And we we're like, whoa, whoa, we got to fix this. We know they want to be here. They're just confused or turned off or don't get it or don't understand. And we wanted to help them understand. So what we did, scratch that login screen. And we swapped in the four highest performing creatives from our Facebook and Instagram advertising, two videos and two static images. And we used those as the login screen. And we saw that profile to account creation number, which had dipped to about 75% from download to account creation, go right back up to like 90, 95. Um, wow. Because people really wanted to, to understand from a brand perspective what they were getting into. And so we wanted to keep the messaging consistent from your first click on that ad to your profile creation. Once you're on the app, all of our imagery is still our new image. It's still this brand power image. But we think that once you've gotten into the flow of it, you're swiping your messaging, it's not as jarring to you anymore as it is when you're just coming in through one branding and then seeing another branding on the app. I see. So were your images on the ad still like oriented towards, I mean, still the, the new branded stuff about empowerment and community? Exactly. exactly. Okay. And a lot more like tell us your stories and different people sharing how they came out or how they were queer, which is really useful content. And people were loving it. People were commenting and liking and sharing it, but they weren't downloading necessarily. And if they were downloading, they weren't always making a profile. And so we were like, people are confused. They don't know that we're a dating app still for love and relationships and one night stands and sex if you want it. Like we just were also these other things. And yeah. so we, we really were actually just in the past two weeks to make sure that our branding, although it is still on our new branding, it makes sense for all of our users. And that all comes from understanding user behavior, doing user profiles, really creating these personas, understanding why people want the app, and then making sure that you're creating a journey for them through the onboarding and retention process that makes sense for that journey. What about the organic downloads? Did you see anything getting impacted by them? Because they might be just looking for a queer dating app for women and then downloading the app and then they see more like community. Did they? Did you see any impact on the organic side? Yeah, our organic downloads have uh, increased since we rebranded the app at the end of May. We were obviously hoping that it would do that, um, especially because we moved away from this idea of just a lesbian dating app and more towards this queer community, fluidity, future app. Um, and so our organic downloads have, have gone up at a consistent rate. They were not as affected as the users who were coming in through paid acquisition channels. I see. I see. I love that. Anything you want to mention before we actually talk about, I mean, I don't know what else to talk about really. No, anything else you <laughs> want to mention before we, we end this? Um, well, I will mention that we are getting ready actually this week uh, to do our first ever ad network buy, which I know most apps actually have done that for years and years. We were always very hesitant to do it for two reasons. One, because we were worried that it would get in a lot of scammers and people who were there because they thought it was porn or because they, you know, wanted sex trafficking and we wanted to do everything in our power to make sure those users were not coming on our platform. And two, because we weren't sure if the targeting that was available in these ad networks was as fine-tuned as it was on Facebook and Instagram. And it's really hard, actually, to target queer women. There is not clear interest or identity targeting that surely like ensures that you are getting your ads in front of queer women. And so we've been really resistant to it for a long time. Um, I actually really pushed for it, even just on a trial basis, because I think that you should always tell my team, we want to fail faster. You want to try every possible acquisition channel. It works. It doesn't work. You move on. Like you do a quick trial, you get great creative up there. 
either you're seeing your cost per install consistent or go lower, which means you should continue with that channel or you're seeing your CPI go up, in which case you should scrap that channel. Um, so we are actually starting one next week. We've done a lot of testing with our creative to see what is the best kind of creative to run on each of the different ad networks. Um, and we're really excited. So, uh, Next time we chat, I'll be sure to fill you in on the progress. We'll see if it does fail, if it does work for us. Um, but as we try to diversify our marketing stack and move away from just a Facebook-dependent ad model, I think this could be a really interesting pathway for us. Well, I can't wait. we got to schedule around three for this. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Stay tuned. <laughs> well, the, actually, you did mention something that I would love to talk to you about is how do you figure out the targeting then? Like, what were you targeting on Facebook? Like, who did you find? Because I, I work with a few people and like, I don't know what to target. Like, we're just left with, yeah. we think we know who we want, but we're not sure. Mm -hmm. So we, we run um, lots of different ad sets, first of all. We do a lot of ad targeting. Uh, we have pretty consistent groups that we know work, which are basically interest-based targeting. We know that people who like queer artists, queer actors, queer books, queer TV shows are very likely to, in fact, be queer. We do a lot of targeting from seed lists that we upload to Facebook or Instagram or another platform that we then match with a lookalike audience, specifically in the US and the UK, and then target to those people. That works very well for us. Um, and then we do some pretty untraditional targeting based on what we think might work. Uh, and this is where we do a lot of the fail faster work. So recently we've we figured out that um, people who are early adopters of technology and use APIs uh, are very likely to install her if they also match with one of those um, queer interests or identity categories I spoke about at the beginning. And so when you can match kind of one big pool over here with one big pool over here and find the intersection in the middle, that is actually the most effective and the cheapest way for us to get new users. That's amazing. But our, I mean, my thing would be like, is there <laughs> enough that would fall in this niche and this niche? Like there's enough overlap here? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people subscribe to Hulu and a lot of people also like Alanis Morissette. So <laughs> you put those two together, it works pretty well for us. But, you know, it's it's a lot of trial and error. And honestly, a lot of keeping a super close eye on ads and tracking them over a week's period of time, figuring out what's working the best, matching different creatives and different copy lines to different ad sets. Uh, so it's a lot of trial and error. Nothing is ever perfect in, in our realm of things, but the lower we can get the CPIs and the more frequently we can swap out the creative, the better our ads do. Do have one more question as well. Like, okay, I like, yeah. I need just need to buy time. Okay. <laughs> the community focus ad yeah. said, you said didn't work. What happened there? So they do work. They don't work at as high of a volume. And so our understanding is that we're bringing in people who are looking for that community element, which is just as important to us as dating, or maybe not capturing, or we had not been capturing all the people who are coming just for dating. So we now run all these community ads with lots of cool videos. We shot in a photo shoot of people telling their coming out stories, explaining what they wish they could have told their younger selves about being queer, talking about awesome queer organizations that are doing great work at a grassroots level. And then simultaneously, we ran ads that are videos of you know, two women holding hands and going to movies and kissing and in the park, just like you see on every other dating app. Ours are just two women or queer people or trans people or gender nonconforming people as opposed to just uh, a heterosexual couple. I see. So like the dating, the loved ones worked a lot better yep. than the community. Yeah. Ones. I love those exactly. videos, by the way, where you, oh. I saw those interviews and white background, so well done. Yeah. And just talking exactly. about oh, how they found love. You. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, we work really hard to make sure that it's representative and also serves to like show a good example uh, for the queer community of storytelling and representation and identity. We really want to be that platform where people say like, I feel like I have a place here and I don't feel like I have that in all aspects of my life, but I know that I can come to her and feel like I'm part of a healthy, safe, growing queer community. No, no, I'm going to edit this part out, but like, there's a, like a clone of her, right? Like there's a her dating app. That's a clone. I was just like trying to Google something, but anyways, yeah, it's called for her. Uh, it's a a Chinese app. They're, they're a duplicate of ours. Uh, we frequently, uh, record them Okay. (laughs) and and please edit this out, but this is part of the reason why we changed our logo because they directly copied ours, um, but they got around the copyright infringement just by changing a couple things. And so, we swapped out our logo for a variety of reasons, but that was definitely a part of it. I only mentioned because I was like looking. I wanted to bring up the fact that the that kind of what we talked about with on the podcast, where I like the branding. You were on that topic. Now it's, I googled her dating iTunes, and they came up, and I was like, "What the heck?" Now you're like, I don't know. They're just yeah, driving me nuts. They actually don't have real users. Um, mm. It's all fake profiles, and. They pay people like to just sit at desks all day and write fake iTunes reviews of them, which is why they skyrocket their position because all their reviews are positive. So it's actually pretty unfortunate. I worry yeah. a lot that they're scamming people yeah. uh, and bringing people into the app who are looking for us and download them by accident. So yeah. another reason why we changed our logo is we want to be very clear about who we are. We are not that other for her app. Right. We don't want to be associated with them. Yeah. Okay. I will. All that yeah, part out. one of the struggles of being, you know, a leader in the industry is everyone wants to do what you're doing. So yeah. we take Chinese. it as a compliment and also as an insult. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna end it and plug everything, and I was like, what is going on? But yeah. I just wanted to mention that. Okay. So the website is weareher.com. Look for her in your iTunes, your Google Play. Just look for that red logo of her and you'll find that as well. Noah, anywhere else you want to send the listeners, the the watchers to? Yeah, I definitely say check out our Instagram feed. It is awesome. Our head of social works really hard to curate like amazing video and static content and be sure to watch our stories every Monday. We have an awesome feature called We Met on Her where we feature one couple that's met on her and they're still dating or they're married. We also have a lot of women on her babies now, which is crazy. It blows my mind that we really helped people start families. Uh, and so always watch our Insta stories on Monday. They're awesome. What's the Instagram handle? Uh, our Instagram handle is her social app. Her social app. And, and if the listeners or viewers want to connect with you personally, what's the best place to go? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me. Um, you can email me Noah at weareher.com or you can find me on Instagram or LinkedIn. That's awesome. Noah, thank you so much for coming back and doing this. Yeah, Steve, thank you so much. It was great to be here.